So this year for our Thursday class, um, I wanted to um, attend to the weekly cycle of Torah readings. Uh, and that's called in Hebrew, Parshat HaShavua, the weekly portion. And um, in all the rush of the holidays and everything, we didn't, and this week is the right week to start because it's Genesis. We've finished with uh, the holidays. Simchat Torah is on Monday night and Tuesday. And so we begin again. And when I was talking to the Lev Shalem Institute group that plans our adult ed together, uh, we were thinking, what theme should we do this year? And what if we looked at parts of Torah that uh, we didn't necessarily focus on, usually? Um, I wrote a song about that once. I have to bring it. I'm looking over the parts of Torah that I overlooked before. <laughs> I have the words. It's a good song. Um, and we also said, let's call it the shadow side of Torah because uh, on, on Shabbat, I don't focus on the disturbing passages in Torah or the confusing ones or as much as I do on the ones that can give us inspiration and teaching in a short period of time that we have during a Shabbat service. But during a two-hour free-for-all, we can dig into some passages and see, well, I wonder what's in here to teach us that we haven't seen before. Uh, and sometimes uh, I'll choose a passage that we're very familiar with, and other times something else. This one's going to be one we're very familiar with, but deeply um, paradoxical and uh, interesting to explore and uh, also when I'm away um, which will be occasional Thursdays because I'm leading a trip to Israel at, towards the end of this month and I'm also going to be away um, on a Thursday in November different members of, the con of our Torah study community Gail's going to teach which one are you teaching Gail? oh I've told you I know you told me I'm still oh okay I'll let you know Oh, good. Hi, Steve. Come close if you want. There's room. Um, there is room. Yeah, there's a seat here or here, whatever you want. So, do you think you could say the Thursdays that you know? No, come on. No. Thursdays that you. There won't be any surprises. Oh, okay. Okay, just, just like read the weekly email. I'm gone the last two weeks November uh, of October, and then I'm also gone uh, one uh, Thursday in November. And uh, Karen Levine's going to teach one, Gail's going to teach one, Dina Crane's going to teach oh, one. so you're saying that there won't be a gap in the class? No, that's what I'm saying. Okay, sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah, no gap in the class. Uh, we decided we didn't want to miss any weeks. Okay. Okay. Uh, no, it doesn't. Sorry, I, think, I just thought, I thought I saw the calendar said canceled. I'll check. Yeah, check. I don't think that's correct, but I will. Uh, so, let's prime ourselves for studying Torah, which involves, in, in the best sense, um, when our guest, Rabbi Natan Margalit, uh, was here this Shabbat, he talked about studying together as not knowing together. I like that, so I'm repeating it. Not knowing together. Rather than coming to the table with, oh, I know what this one's about. Let's not know together. 
And uh, that's just an incredibly liberating perspective when you think about it, because it frees us up from trying to be right or wrong, from having the text be good or bad, from all of our, you know, all that stuff, and allows us to go exploring together. So we'll explore the text together, and, that's, and that means, an exploration means that uh, we don't know what the outcome is going to be. But the pleasure for me of studying Torah with you over all these years has been that I always get to somewhere I didn't expect to get to. And that's the, that's the, the beauty and the glory of it. So, so it requires curiosity and humility and um, enthusiasm and passion and, you know, that is, you know all of it. But let's, let's not know together, though as, because I've put some hours into preparing for this class, I did choose a passage, and then I did study all kinds of commentaries, and I've got some sources for you which will help guide us on what the, some of the Jewish routes that have been, um, uh, what do you call it, blazed into this stuff are. And I decided that the, the, I wanted to, once again, this might be my fifth or sixth time through, reread Aviva Zornberg's book, Genesis, The Beginning of Desire, because she's so brilliant. And so there I was reading the passage on Genesis again, and I didn't remember it, her interpretation. And I was going, oh, wow. So I used, I used her as my inspiration. Um, any comments or questions so far? OK. Uh, then let's grab our chumashim. Yes, this is a book. You read it in little bits, or you read it and then you read it again because she's so she's it's dense. Oh yeah, thank you for reminding me. So let's say the blessing for embarking on our exploration of Torah study this year, along with Hashemianu for reaching for starting over again. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher Kitshanu B'Mitzvotav V'Tzivanu La'Asok B'Divrei Torah. Amen, which means to engage in words of Torah. And then, Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Shehachiyanu V'Kiyamanu V'Higiyanu Lazman Hazeh. Beautiful. Okay, so everybody, turn in your chumash to page 21, 20 and 21. I just thought it. Oh, right, right, right. Genesis chapter 1, verse 24. I was just going to say a nice echo to what you just said for Genesis is that in the beginning there was darkness. There was darkness and over the face of the deep. That's right. And we will illuminate it. So I want to read the sixth day and then I will... Um, I want to guide us right to one verse. And because we could spend so much time on this, but I, and, and I want to focus on one verse for starters. So if we look at verse 24, which is the beginning of the sixth day, God then said, let the earth bring forth living creatures of every type, domestic animals and creeping things and wild animals, each true to its type, and so it was. 
Thus God made the wild animals each true to its type, and the domestic animals each true to its type, and every creature that creeps on the ground each true to its type, and God saw how good it was. And now, this is the verse I want us focused on. God now said, let us make human beings in our image after our likeness and let them hold sway over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the beasts, over all the earth, over all that creeps upon the earth. We'll come back to it, but we'll read the whole sixth day. So God created the human beings in the divine image, creating them in the image of God, creating them male and female. God then blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and tame it, hold sway over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every animal that creeps on the earth. And God said, look, I have given you all the seed-bearing plants on the face of the earth and every tree that has in its seed-bearing fruit, these are yours to eat. And to every land animal and to every bird of the sky and to all that creeps on the earth in which is the breath of life, I give all green vegetation for food. And so it was. God then surveyed all that God had made, and look, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, by Yom Hashishi, the sixth day. So we're on page uh, 21 in the Chumash, page 21. Okay. And this is the first time God said it was very good. Right. God says it's good, and then on the sixth day, God surveys it all and says it's very good. Okay. So what I want to focus on, everybody, in order, in order to, to give us a, a structure, is verse 26 at the top of page 21. God now said, adam Let us make human beings in our image after our likeness. One of the most perplexing lines in, in Genesis, certainly in the Torah. Why does it perplex us? Because we make all these interpretations of what G-O-D looks like. Well, uh, what, what about the line is problematic based on what we understand about the Jewish understanding of God? Our. Who's God talking to? Who's God talking to? Let us make Adam in our image. Whose image? Right. What? So this verse is confounding to people, right? If God is one and there's only one creator, what's going on here? And so we will encounter endless interpretations. Uh, however, um, there are interpretations in Jewish tradition dating back thousands of years that are that that are consistent um, about um, what in, in consistent in the sense that Judaism understands Torah not as a description of God, not as a um, exploration into the nature of God, but as what can we learn about the human situation from our text? Now, the Torah means, as many of you know, teaching or instruction. 
And it seems pretty clear that the teaching that Torah primarily wants to communicate to us is how do we be moral beings? How do we fulfill our... Uh, our how, it, it's a book of moral instruction. And that doesn't have anything to do with making him in his image or his likeness, because God doesn't have a likeness. What a confusing verse, isn't it? So we get to explore together. Um, and I'm going to guide our exploration a bit with some sources. And I'm going to share this with you. So uh, I had fun putting this together, and then I was out of time, so this is what we got. But I think it's plenty. Before we look at these sources, which let's talk about what some our first thoughts are about this. One is that it's a literary device, yeah. right? Yeah. Another, yeah. I'm reminded of now how um, maybe it's irrelevant. I don't know how gay people refer to themselves as they now. Well, it's not gay people. It's people who mm-hmm. don't consider themselves uh, don't want to be pigeonholed as male or female. So many, many, just, I'm learning about this myself. Many, many gay people are clearly and completely identified with the gender that they're, that they were, that they were born with. And then there's a minor, you know, a subset of people who are now feeling permission to uh, um, say out loud, that no, I've never identified with this particular gender, nor the other. I'm not trans either. Uh, I just am what I am. And so now the, 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 um, the culture is searching for a pronoun um, that uh, they can call themselves. And right now, that pronoun is they, which for many of us is, is very disorienting. And uh, we get used to it because it's happening. So, um, uh, uh, so yes, it could be a not a contemporary interpretation. What we call a, you know, there's a book uh, called uh, what's it called? Torah queries, which is uh, Torah commentaries written by folks who consider themselves queer. Queer being the common phrase now for non-binary, you know, not fitting in any gender category. And so, yes, uh, that would be a great one that this was a non-gendered expression. Now, I, and I can, non-binary. Now, we can spin on that. Why? So let's go in that direction for a little bit before we look at the page. It says uh, that the Hebrew is, um, the English is trying to deal with Hebrew that can't be translated well. So it says in verse 27, 
Vayivra Elohim et ha'adam. So God created ha'adam. What does that mean? The man, the man or the human, the man. right? Bitzalmo uh, Bitzalem Elohim in God's image. Zachar v'nekeva bara otam. Male and female, God created them. So the problem in this verse, grammatically, is that uh, God creates the human in God's image, singular. And then it says, and yes, God created them, male and female. So um, the Midrash, which I didn't put on this sheet, which I handed to you, but which is very much a, a mainstream Midrash, is, well, maybe there's just, maybe God just created initially one human, and the human was androgynous. Uh, have, you, have you followed this track before? Do you know about this? Some of you do. Uh, the human was androgynous. And in fact, the Midrash says that the human had two faces, um, but that they were facing away from each other. Right. A male and a female. Or, uh, and, um, and God brings all the animals in the Garden of Eden before the human uh, to find a benzug, a partner, a counterpart, and none of them are appropriate. And then God says, it's not good for the human to be alone. And so a deep sleep fell upon Adam, and God removed a rib, it says in Hebrew. But tsela, the word for rib, also means side in Hebrew. So there's a whole separate Midrashic stream that doesn't go with the, the rib thing that says, no, what God did was God essentially sliced the human down the middle and turned them, them towards each other so that they could, and then Adam said, and this woman is the bone flesh of my flesh and they can unite now. So um, speaking of the contemporary you know, the idea that the first human was not gendered or was androgynous um, is, is pretty cool. Yes. And that I don't have to make that up. It's like somebody did it 22,000 years ago. Just before we learned that God created the animals. Yes. And we can assume he made the animals male and female. Yes. So why, when it comes to man, does he make just one? Um, that's a good question. Let's not know together, right? Uh, let's see, why, why just one? Well, it leads us to storytelling, and the way Rashi and the Midrash talk about it is um, everybody, we have to weave a tale to answer that question because there's no explanation in the text. One possibility is that God was lonely and that God wanted a counterpart. Um, uh, made in his God's image, right? So none of the other creatures are made in God's image. Only the human. So why is God doing that? And that leads to all kinds of stories we can tell about God wanting a, someone to know. Wait a minute. Verse 27 says he created male and female. No, first it says, so God created the Adam, in the divine image, and it's singular. And then it says male and female. 
God created them. So the verse in Hebrew is very confusing. I know. Well, that's where our translations fail us. Uh, just one second. Um, and between that gap of the singular and the plural, the rabbis insert the Garden of Eden story. Yeah. Right? Because keep in mind that the Torah is not a history book or a science book. And that whereas in chapter 1 of Genesis, it has this beautiful story of creation, in chapter 2 of Genesis, it has another story of creation, where when we read in chapter 2, God creates a garden. Before the garden, the earth is just, and God first creates the human being and plants a garden and creates creatures around the human being. So interestingly, chapter 1, humans are the final act of creation, and in chapter 2, they're pretty much the first act of creation. So those who want these stories to cohere as some kind of like textbook are hard-pressed, shall we say. But if we read them as two teaching stories that we can interweave with each other, and then it becomes much more uh, available, because uh, it doesn't work. And you know, you read, I was reading in an article about this, how the author said, it seems that the editors somehow, somewhat clumsily, put chapter one and chapter two together because they had two different stories and they needed to put them. And this is something we've talked about for years. That is the arrogance of the modern academy. To think that someone 3,000 years ago had the same ideas of what literary coherence was as I do today. And if my idea of literary coherence doesn't match, then they must have been clumsy. Right, you follow what I'm saying? Uh, so um, you run into that a lot. Gail, you wanted to, did, did I ask you already? Um, uh, first, that the, the um, idea that God needed to make man in his image to have a companion, since the man is, the human is made of both genders, implies that God is of both genders. Uh, uh, can you talk, uh, I'll repeat, but maybe you guys can squeeze a little closer. Okay, all right. Obviously. Right. Even though the text refers to God in the male text, male, you know, all the time in terms of the grammar. Right. But in this story, it's clearly implied that God is. God is more than God exceeds or transcends any any gender. But is at least minimally both male and female. Uh Minimally. In other words, uh, yes, and that would also could also be expressed as. is beyond duality. That's a different meaning from what I'm saying right now. Uh-huh. I'm saying in duality, God is at least male and female. You can argue for a lot more than that, but Good. I got you. This, this phrasing here. The other thing I wanted to say is that I think it's very useful to think of the Torah as a novel. Think of it as a novel, a, novel. a somewhat experimental more, novel. Yeah, it's structured much more like a novel than it is like a work of nonfiction. Mm-hmm. I don't mean to say it's not about teaching or even truth. No, it's my best teachings right. come from good stories. Right, exactly. It's structured the way a novel would be structured. Mm-hmm. And it's also, so thank you, a novel, also a collection of um, 
a, a woven together collection of legends, dreams, stories that somehow also cohere as a, as 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 a novelistic narrative because we go from the beginning, remember, all the way through human history, right up to the shores of the uh, Jordan River. So there's a there is a plot there, but it's not a plot that we would follow in um, a satisfying way if we wanted all the elements to cohere the way we expect from a realistic novel today. Yes? The um, differences in chapter one and chapter two in the creation story, I think of that as something like it's fluid and it and the one of the words now for people who don't identify with any gender is gender fluid. Yes, that is one of the words. Right. So this is this is a fluid thing. It doesn't it's not consistent. It doesn't maybe know exactly where it is, or it does know that it isn't necessarily in anywhere that is already known. So it just seemed to sort of match the whole idea of fluidity, mm -hmm. which we could say that God is gender fluid if we wanted to. Yes, we could. So that's another important ground rule to acknowledge when we sit down for Torah study in 2018, is that God in the Torah is referred to almost exclusively in the, in the masculine. And um, uh, that doesn't mean God is a man. Um, and we have both the, lib we have the liberty and the uh, license to um, just blow that out of the water. Because, again, this isn't, that's how they expressed it in Hebrew in ancient Israel. Um, but we don't, we can see, you know, behind that and try to imagine ourselves in, in without being, a, that is a sort of a, a stumbling block for us. Yes? Could, could, could one say, or make the argument, which I'm not, but I'm just wondering if one could say that the whole genre of magic realism Sprang from the Torah. Magical realism. That's a good. Oh no, that's a great modern. Magical realism. Do you know what that is? Is that a novelistic? Yes. 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 Do you remember Gabriel Garcia Marquez yeah. and all kinds of novels that, like, yeah. all of a sudden you're not. Carlos Castaneda. And sure. Sure. Paula Coelho. Mm -hmm. Um. That's very helpful, I think, to us today. It's you, you know you you just take the ride. And you go with them wherever they're going. And it's not, it's magical realism. Um, are we in a dream now? How did we get over here? How do we move backwards in time? What did, you know, and if the author's really good, then you don't care. Because you want to just, you want to go with them. That's right. Yeah. And it's, uh, so yes, I think that's a great way of describing it. Thank you. Magical realism. Yeah. not simply an early narrative form that has magical elements. When I say novel, I mean it's also constructed so that elements that are presented near the beginning may reverberate again and again in different ways as the work progresses. Thank you. Okay. They not only may reverberate, they, they do, do reverberate. reverberate. It's amazing. That's why 
I never get tired of studying it exactly. because because of its incredibly intricate and coherent, deep structure. You see things come up again and again. You say, oh my gosh, that reminds me. Oh, there it happened again. And oh, now it's over. It's really, you know, once you get into this, uh, this, for, this thing called Torah study, it's pretty, it's pretty fun. Yeah. I think it's very, going to be very hard to convince the world that God didn't have a gender because from the very beginning, God was referred to as he, and it's been that way since the beginning, and we don't question. We just say, you know, as they did in 1776, all men are created equal. Oh, okay, all men are created equal. I, I guess that means everybody. Uh, yeah, but I think, that's, I think that could change, because I think it is changing. Uh, language changes slowly, slowly and fortunately, um, I'm not trying to convince the world of anything, because uh, that sounds like a very, very impossible job. Uh, however, I hear you, and if we are going to stay engaged with our Jewish heritage, we have to make the translation to, to ways of understanding that suit us. That's all. Uh, it's hard, yeah. Takes practice. Diane? The culture that we have inherited has God as a man, but many world religions weren't That's that way. So if you talk about convincing the world that God is genderless, yeah. there's a bigger picture. And, and I gave a talk at, in synagogue a couple weeks ago about metaphors, the, the plethora of metaphors to, with which God is referred in, in Torah, including the rock, the, 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 source, uh, the, the, the source of living waters, the um, light. E light, the eagle that hovers over its foundlings. The, you know, so again, there's plenty of, I guess you would say, um, uh, sub-themes that we can choose to highlight um, that give us some, that kind of loosen up the grip of the God as male. But yeah, it's a giant job. Yeah. Uh, I was going to uh, point out to what Diane said as well because, um, you know, for instance, in, in the Eastern culture, especially in Hinduism and, and in that area, the divinity is threefold. Creator, preserver, destroyer, positive, negative, neutral, encompassing all those elements that create creation. The creation comes mm -hmm. from those elements. And when you yes. boil down cre creation, it comes to the threefold property of the divinity which we all carry inside of us. So you don't have to convince them. They don't look at it as he. Well, don't they think that Confucius and Buddhism, Buddha and... So they're not gods, uh, they're people. Yeah, those are teachers. Oh, that's right, I'm sorry. Right. But what they taught was a oneness, and that oneness comes back to what keeps you alive. And we can teach that same oneness, because it's clearly the basis in our tradition. Arlene? Um, I'm, I'm reminded of, I'm sure you know from way back, uh, the story, the Greek story, I think it was by Aristophanes, about original human beings who were they had four arms and two, two heads and four legs. Oh, no, I didn't know that story. And they were 
teachers that were double everything they are now, and they did something to anger uh, the gods, and uh, so he split them in half. And then supposedly the story is when you find your true love, you're finding your other half. It could be another one of the same gender or of a different gender. That's a nice story. That's nice. So keep in mind that the, 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 the myths of the ancient Near East and the Mediterranean traveled all over. And different cultures knew, would hear those myths and then they would morph into new forms and different interpretations based on the you know, that particular culture. And so Judaism's myths are not unique in terms of not, they, versions of them exist all over the ancient Near East. What's unique about them is the, the thrust of how they get expressed and the teaching and worldview behind them from our culture. Buria? Yeah, um, I think I found that. Uh, to me, God is not a man, a woman, a tree, statue or anything. When I express God, when I pray, I don't see a human being uh -huh. attached to it. I know that it is something, some force out there that I believe is God. Mm -hmm. Untouchable, unseeable, but feelable. With uh. every breath, you feel that you are connected right. to something. So let me, thank you, that's well expressed. So let me say, again, what I've, a, a sort of an, a, a rule that I've come to understand about Judaism. Judaism is not preoccupied with our belief and understanding of what God is. Judaism is preoccupied with us having a relationship with that which we call God, right? And so, it's that relationship that's most important, uh, not our precise definition of God. Uh, so keep that in mind, too. That's very important. Uh, the way, you know, Heschel called it, uh, the God of, the, Heschel's books were called God in Search of Man and Man in Search of God. If he was writing today, he wouldn't say man. He would find a different way of saying it because he was sensitive to these things and Back in the 40s and 50s, that's just what we said. So, God in search of man and man in search of God. That, and he also called God a God of pathos, meaning a God of, of feeling, a God that wants to be with. And so, uh, relationship is key. Um, you know, Stacy um, Mapstone read a, uh, a poem translated from the Yiddish by Aaron Zeitlin, saying... <laughs> Praise me or curse me, says God, and I know you love me. Uh, but if you, just, if you just yawn at the stars, then I created you in vain. It's a great poem. Uh, praise me or curse me. That's fine, says God, as long as you're relating to me. <laughs> uh, I have it. It's... it's uh, okay. Sorry. Um, I have it. You can ask me for it. I'll bring it even. Um, so, uh, let us make human being in our image. What else might it be? How about the royal we? That's the most common pshat explanation. <coughs> pshat means the very plainest, simplest explanation you could come up with. 
God's king, and it's the royal we. End of problem, right? Um, so th those explanations are out there. So now let's look at these sheets. May I riff on what we're Yo, saying? please do. Um, if we all share through our tradition a relationship to God, this mysterious oneness that's beyond our definition and our, mm -hmm. our explaining, and we're looking at our tradition of Torah, um, the inexplicable, man's, meaning men and women, man's pursuit of the inexplicable to explain our relationship to the mystery and our, <coughs> our uh, reveling in life and our struggling with death and gender and sex and everything that it is to be human, this is, this is being wrestled with through an author. <coughs> and the, so the divine image, who's writing this? Yes, is God, are we made in God's image or is God made in our image also? <laughs> so it's to say that this is God saying that he's creating humans in our image. It's, it's a human trying to wrestle with this, right. this beginning mystery. All and myths, just like the Torah, all sacred myths, are humans telling stories to try to wrestle with the mystery right. out of which we emerge and which we are aware of. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So that again frees us up not to try to uh, uh, precisely pin it down, but to know that let's wrestle with this together is a better way of describing it. Miriam? Growing up in the Pacific Northwest, I just thought something. Um, being raised Methodist, of course, I read the Bible, but I grew up with a lot of the Native American stories. Yes. And so I didn't have any, that was really my basic concept of living off the land. Uh, um, some of the concept was that we didn't say Mother Earth, but the land was so special and important, and all the stories, so many stories of how they lived in longhouses, and how they worked at the land. I mean, they, the reason why they fought the East coming is because they would take over the land as opposed to it being for everyone. And that, a lot of that was uh, the whole idea that it, what we, nobody owned it, Right. But yet, it was like, and there was a lot of equality of being within the stories. So it was in conflict with me when my father had to be the superior one in the family, or it was men, men, men. So it, I just got why I was raised with a lot of conflicting, um, uh, um, I couldn't quite get it till now I understand that the two stories I was raised with um, or, and the way I was being attitude at the same stories, there was a big conflict. So, and I, so I'm just sharing. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That's interesting. So this is our creation's myth. 
And again, uh, if we wanted to compare creation myths from around the world, that's a fascinating undertaking. I have a whole library on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a, yeah. So but, I, I yes. So, <clears throat> if God could create <clears throat> a human being in his likeness, right. and if God had both, if God was androgynous, why, did he, why couldn't he create a female as well as a male? Um, that's a good question. One theory, uh, you know, why is the first Adam seems to be in a masculine, yeah. based on what we read in the next story, which Eve is created out of Adam? Yeah. Um, I mean, my favorite explanation is, I also don't know, what, is, is that this is a patriarchal society, uh. and the king is the Lord. And, um, you know, so they used the, they, 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 they grew the story out of the forms that they, that they knew. Um, that's my favorite explanation, but there could be 20 others. But I, yeah. Another one that just occurred to me is that in this story, it's sort of like a man is giving birth. And so... I don't know why I thought of that. That's, it's, it's like, okay. Can we redeem uh, the story by having it be all about genders all mixed up? You know, God is also referred to as Harachum, which means the womb-like one, which means compassionate. And also as El Shaddai, which means the God with breasts, um, who nourishes. And so, you know, we underestimate our ancestors. Um, uh, by thinking that they were rigidly adhering to the idea of gender in the way that, that uh, we might be inclined to think they were. Um, but I want to look at this before, you know, yeah. so Rashi. Rashi is uh, the most famous Jewish commentator. He's writing in um, the 11th century in France. He's not, he, is, he has a whole library of all the collections of interpretations up to that point. He has a whole Jewish library, and he chooses his comments not based on, by, by digesting and choosing one older commentary. So when I say Rashi, it's not, it's usually him excerpting something that's older, but what? doing it with reason, right? He's not doing it randomly. He has his when, worldview. When was Rashi? The 11th century in France. Just a question on your, uh, the, way, the way you presented it. You said, God said, let us make Adam in our image. By capitalizing it, you're referring to a specific man. No, I'm referring to Adam intentionally not as a man, but as the human. Because so the you, first why you capitalize it? Because it's a concept. It's for me that's a conceptual framework of let us create Adam, uh, this creature that is a human. You take take issue with my grammar choice there. I wanted to I didn't I wanted to make as much as possible this sheet, I adapted language so that it wouldn't refer to he or she as much as possible. I feel like that's a responsibility that I have these days. 
So I'm, it's awkward sometimes, but when you look at the Hebrew, it says, Na'ase Adam B'Tzalmenu. So I could have written, let us make the human being. That would have been a good way to translate it, too. Yeah. Let us make the human being in our image after our likeness. Yes? Maybe. But Adam is the same root as Adama. Yes. Adama is earth. Adam is human. And because the human is made from the earth. Right. So let us make the human being. I'll just say that. Okay. So Rashi says, From here we learn the humility of the Holy One, blessed be. Since the human was created in the likeness of the angels, and they would envy the human, the Holy One consulted them and asked permission of his court. Um, okay, a story. Everything in Torah is supposed to teach us something. So the writer of this Midrash that Rashi's quoting is imagining, as most people did back then, that there is a heavenly court that there is with, filled with ministering angels who are created by God and who have no volition outside of what, really, outside of what God decrees. God's God, right? The king is the king. And the king has advisors and ministers and prosecuting angels and defense angels. And it's a whole big picture of a really crowded heavenly court. And... Uh, and I know this, you know, again, for folks who want God to be some austere philosophical oneness, this drives them crazy. Right? It did in the Middle Ages. It's like there were Jews, Maimonides, there were Jews who were philosophers whose bent was to, was to make these austere concepts and, saying, and others who were storytellers. So these are the storytellers. And in the story, the heavenly court, because you tell better stories when there's more characters, right? And in the storytelling version, God is sitting on the throne, God is the king, and God has a heavenly court. And God can just decree and it's so, right? That's what happens all through the first five days of Genesis. God says, let there be light, and there's light. No consultations involved. And then so, if you're watching the thread of the story, then it says, now let us... What? Um, and so that leads to this beautiful interpretation that the heavenly angels were just cheering all along. Yay, day four, day five. You go, God. You go, God. And then it gets to day six and the creatures, and it's good. And then, um, and then God says, let us. And so the story is that humans in the Jewish storytelling universe are but a little lower than angels, right? Because we have the divine nature. What is the divine nature? We can answer that in many ways. Let's call it self-awareness. Let's call it the ability to know. Rabbi Akiva said it this way, who was a really... The, the, the Zen master of, of rabbinic teachings. He said, Beloved are human beings, uh, for they are made in the image of God. But even more beloved are human beings that they are aware 
that they're made in the image of God. Right. Right. Self-awareness. That Akiva considers to be the greatest gift. And again, we are understanding now that many, many other creatures have have levels of self-awareness. That's not something that that's coming into our consciousness now. But the human beings in particular, because we're writing stories about ourselves, um, are given this, um, this uh, ability to, to be aware. We're aware that we're going to die. We're also somehow touched by grandeur. We sense the majesty of the universe while we also sense the terror of life and death. It's like, wow. And... Uh, so we are. So that is considered to be our divine nature, which God has also bestowed on the angels. But angels don't sin in the Jewish tradition because they don't have bodies. So they don't have bodily urges and needs. They don't have egos. They don't, so we're like the angels, but we're different. So God is thinking, I have this experiment I want to do. I want to see what it's like to infuse this divine consciousness into beings of, of made of flesh. They're going to be like the angels. I don't want my angels to be jealous. I know what I'll do. I'll consult with them. Hey, let's do this. And then, as you're going to see, there's a bunch of midrashim that describe the consultations that, that actually, that, and we're going to read them, that actually, um, what's the word I'm looking for to make it more complex? Uh, they don't, stream, they don't simplify the narrative, they complicate. complicate it. Because we're so complicated. Um, so Rashi takes this as he takes most of the text, and Rashi is, <clears throat> by definition, the mainstream of Jewish thought. He's digesting stuff, and he becomes accepted as the mainstream of Jewish thought. Uh, that everything that's in this book is to teach us something. Now that's a beautiful, uh, mm. a beautiful uh, position to take, because if you treat, because you know, if you treat it that way, then it becomes a book of teaching. That's right. Right. Then it makes sense. Uh, well, it's there to teach us lessons about how to be a per person. But when did the angels come in? I don't see it. Where Where did he get the? He just made them up. Where Where, where did ah, that come from? So. Um, uh, the Bible itself, the, the Bible itself here has no, doesn't talk about angels. It does, however, talk about, look at, put your finger on that page and look at page 32. That's a good question. Chapter 6. The very end of this week's portion. Chapter 6, verse 1. It's on page 32. Now, as the people began to multiply on the earth, daughters were born to them. And when the divine beings, what's that in Hebrew? B'nai Elohim in Hebrew. The, the children, sons of God. What? Uh, when the divine beings saw how fair were the human women, think Greek, Greek mythology here and the Titans, they took wives for themselves as they chose. And then the Eternal One said, My spirit will not forever endure the humans 
as they are but fallible flesh. Their lifespan shall be only 120 years. <laughs> I could have picked this passage as the one to explore today. Yeah. The Nephilim were on earth in those days and afterwards. Hmm. Who were the Nephilim? Wow. Well, Nephilim means fallen ones. Oh. Fallen. Oh. Fallen. Nephilim. Nophel. Nophel. So, the fallen ones, what? You know, are these the fallen angels? Uh, are they like, what's going on here? Um, the extraterrestrials? Mm-hmm. That was a whole book that I read when I was a kid. Um, and afterward, too, when the divine beings mated with the human women, they bore for them those heroes who from of old enjoyed great renown. That's Greek mythology. It's totally, totally Greek mythology, right? <laughs> or, but, so, wow. what we can imply from this, Joan, is that in the worldview of that time, God had a heavenly court. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. And that that understanding persisted straight through. It, it, what do you think, Gail? Oh, boy. In the literature. Which is very ancient. Right, but it's not as ancient as this. No, but it's... Um, As cultures, you know, because this is a fluid storytelling tradition, it grows and grows. There are seven heavens. There are all kinds of ministering angels. Ezekiel has a vision of fiery angels and angels with lots of eyes and angels who are griffin-like and sphinx-like. And it's angels guarding each level. And then later in, the, in the, what's called the intertestamental period, in the early centuries around the end of BCCE, the angels start getting names, Gabriel, and Michael, and Raphael, and Uriel, and Metatron, and they all have names, and it, it is a, a Rococo. It's, it's like, is that the right word? It's Baroque, you know, it's like, what a heaven. And then there's a reaction to that in the Middle Ages uh, under the influence of the Islamic, uh, uh, the creation of Islam, and a desire to get a more pure philosophical. And so when you study Jewish history, the heavens are constantly changing. The only thing that doesn't change is this idea that there's, we are all created by the one. But the, the imagery and the... So one can assume, based on these, these, that this story got in here too, that he, God was not alone in heaven. That's my answer. That does answer what you asked, right? Yes, it does. Yeah. And that there was permeability between heavens and earth that God was not in favor of. Um, and, yeah. And the Nephilim not only reappear in numbers, because that's who the scouts see, right. the Nephilim, but also um, Goliath, who David defeats, that's the Tanakh, right. is, uh, is from the Nephilim. That's right, Goliath so is one of these creatures. That there were these I would call them titans. The demigods. And these mm-hmm. are the heroes. Well, they're the whatever they're yeah. Giborim is translated heroes. Giborim can also mean warriors. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, yes, Nifilim come up again um, in the story of the spies. And I want to get to that before the end of this class. 
Okay, but I want to let I, I don't want to forget that. So, because um, it's really interesting in terms of what Gail was saying before about how themes recur, and when you see when they recur, they're not random, because the whole story of the scouts that go up to Israel and see the Nephilim, and then they themselves see themselves as less than human, as grasshoppers, and come back, and the people can't enter the Promised Land because the, the scouts who were sent up there were unable to rise to their true divine nature. Hmm. Right? And so they were forced to wander, just like Cain is forced to wander. There's, the themes recur over and over again. The way, and I'll, I'll say this now, the way Aviva Zornberg describes it is the challenge between verticality and horizontal. That we are both, we human beings, because we're made of the earth, but also infused with the breath of the divine, we have a huge challenge of how to stand upright when so much of life that's in us is a swarming, fecund, sort of fertile mass that we should be fruitful and multiply. So how do we, rec- how do we reconcile our animal nature with the divine nature that's breathed into us? And this becomes the, in, I think uh, Aviva Sornberg is very persuasive and I, I, I agree with her, this becomes the theme of the Torah. How do humans recognize and enact our higher consciousness? Does that make sense, everybody? And not just our animal nature. And it is really, it is the conundrum of being a human being. So the question the Torah asks, the writers of the Torah are asking the human question. What's with us? You know? How come we taste grandeur and we behave this way? How, and what, what can we do about it? Mm. Uh, Miriam and then Diane. A question, but also I've heard somewhere there is stories Did you ever myth, hear that? It is that the angels are, that if one would decide they want to be, try being a human. So that, that that's, that that's, some, I, I have heard that some people believe that humans are actually angels who decide to be born. Right. That's the bumper sticker, uh, which What's is, that? I'm not uh, a human being having a spiritual oh, yeah, experience. Yeah, yeah. I'm a spiritual being having a human experience. Yeah. Okay. It's a bumper sticker I saw. Right. Oh, yeah, it's, it's I a, like it. Well, again, these are stories. The stories are there to try to communicate our experience of what it means to be a human being. They're not, there's no, we're not going to find the right story that's truer than the others. We're going to be telling stories that try to, uh, in, in a narrative, express the conundrum that we experience in ourselves and see all around us at all times throughout human history. How come... We are so magnificent. How come we can envision a perfected world and then behave like this? Right? That's the question the Torah asks. Diane, you wanted to say something. Well, you said we were not knowing together, but yeah. some of us... Well, I'm glad you know, because I can't... Uh, no, some of us know a whole lot less than 
I'm not trying to pull rank here, but I really know a little. <laughs> but you know more than me, so you know it's all relative. But I was just reading the, the very end of the Parsha. Oh, about Noah. Mm-hmm. Noah no, gets no, introduced. Not, not even about Noah. Noah gets introduced, but uh, when the Eternal saw how great was the wickedness of human beings on the earth, right. the direction of their thoughts was nothing but wicked all the time. Right. The eternal regret regretted regretted human beings on earth. Right. Mm-hmm. And was heart sick. Heart sick. Mm-hmm. So the eternal thought, I will wipe them. So we start from, it is good, it is good, it is good. Right. That's not so good. Get rid of them. Right. And, and that's just what you were saying, that the, the whole story is how do we reconcile. And so the Jewish interpretation is, this Torah is here to teach us how to do that. And so Rashi looks for... And Rashi, and Rashi, thank you. Yes, you're right. The Torah itself, in the midst of its first chapter, goes from ecstatic to, like, heartsick. Oh, yeah. That makes this a good, a true book. <laughs> That's right. That means it's telling the truth. It wants to destroy us all. Yeah, but what's the last line of the Parsha? Noah found favor in the eternal sight. Right. So God is really conflicted. Um, but we're made in his image. We're made in God's image. God may, wants us. God loves us. And so that was because of Cain? Well, so was there other Not stuff? just Cain. Oh, yeah. We, we're not reading the whole Parsha. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what happens is, is that humans, because they were commanded to pru-urvu, to spread out and multiply and uh, um, uh, uh, fill the earth. Uh, that's, our, that's our physical nature, right? The earth, is, and we're part of it. But it, we, we haven't gotten the rest of the memo yet. The rest of the memo comes at Mount Sinai, oh. right? Okay, God says, I get it. I didn't give you enough instructions. I thought by implanting my divine awareness into you, that would be sufficient. Little did I understand, not being a physical being myself, the, the urges and desires and uh, um, drives that make up this earth I've created. In other words, God is not painting a canvas. God's creating a living organism. And once that organism is created, it has a life of its own. And it's almost like God, and we've talked about this many times, uh, in, in doing so, did not foresee what was going to happen. Now, that's a problem for the philosopher's God. The philosopher's God said, how could that be possible? And the storyteller says, would you lighten up? <laughs> We're trying to t- t- tell a story here. And free will is Do, free do you follow will. what I'm saying, everybody? It's like, I get it about the philosopher's God, and I enjoy that kind of reading. But that's not what this is. This is a story. Stories have, have narrative drive. Tension. Tension. Oh, yes, Arlene. It, it just makes me think of, you raise your children. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. With all Pretty these well. ideas, and then all of a sudden they become their own person. That's right. It's exactly like that. Exactly. Yeah. But what's so interesting also is that he allows himself to be persuaded. 
not once, not twice, but throughout the entire mm-hmm. Torah, he allows himself to be persuaded by humans. That's right. That's right. So that's why I say I think God wanted humans yeah. so that God had somebody to yeah. sort all this out with. You know, um, uh, was there another hand? Uh, yes. I and was, yes. I was just thinking that the Nephilim, all these angels, yep. are um, a product of the myth-making, image-making, story-making uh, capacity in us to wrestle with this, like how how do how do we interpenetrate our, the the divine realm in this earthly realm? Mm-hmm. There's just other. That's right. Metaphors for that. That is conundrum. the conundrum. That is the question of the Torah, and for me, the underlying question behind what it means to be made in God's image, but of the dust of the earth, that we are a walking. Paradox, a walk, you know, that, uh, um, you know, um, one of the things about Aviva Zornberg is, um, she's, I think her PhD is in English literature, so she's quoting from everywhere, and she quotes Hamlet in this chapter. Get thee to a nunnery. Why wouldst thou be a breeder of sinners? I am myself indifferent, honest, yet I could accuse me of such things that it were better my mother had not borne me. What should such fellows as I do, crawling between earth and heaven? Mm. Oh boy, I just love that phrase. That's us, mm. crawling between earth and heaven. Um, yes, Berea. <coughs> really, we were created into a beautiful world that God created, and we were crawling on four. Crawling. Mm-hmm. Well, crawling on fours. Crawling on fours. How do, can you enjoy something beautiful like that? Crawling in the fork. And, and that, that's when the human was really created in order to see the world and enjoy it. To be able to stand upright yeah. and see the world. And so, again, Aviva Zornberg, I give her complete credit points out, and we will follow this thread, what it means to creep and crawl, which is romes, which is the word used for um, all the creatures, except for the human being, who stands. And, what, and she, uses, says it's a, she thinks it's very clearly a metaphor for, you know, fertility, fecundity, creep spreading and swarming. So that when the spies see themselves as grasshoppers, mm-hmm. they're only seeing themselves as swarming, you know, creatures. When Pharaoh talks about the Israelites, he says they've spread out and are swarming all over my country. It's not, it's the part of us that leaves out the human ability to stand upright. And now think about what upright means in human language, in our language, metaphorically. What does it mean to be upright? Honest. Honest. Towards righteousness. Towards righteousness. Well, that would be the moral. Self-aware. True, self-aware. And able right. of doing something. And you also, at that point, you also have your hands free to make, like God molds us out of the earth, we now have hands 
because we're upright. So standing, and what do we say when we stand in judgment? You know, we don't crawl in judgment, we stand. And so the metaphor of standing is very, very, uh, um, uh, permeates. It's, it's very interesting, isn't it? So then are we, are we swarming fecund beings? Yes. But God made us in God's likeness and image. And what does that mean? We are also. We are also. How do we recognize and then manifest our divine nature? That is the question of every religion and spiritual tradition in the world. Right? That's, and human beings, uh, and Judaism asks, it, you know, it's the question of the Torah. So I want to repeat. If we ask ourselves of life, something happens to us, and we ask ourselves, what can I learn from this? We're being our best human beings. Mm-hmm. And so the way to approach Torah is the way Rashi approaches Torah, which is to say, what can we learn from this? And so on that very top line, it says, from here we learn the humility of the Holy One. Since the human was created in the likeness of the angels and they would envy the human, the Holy One consulted them. And the Hebrew word is nimlach, which is to give them malchut, give, give them sovereignty in this situation, and asked permission of his court. So again, this is storytelling. And in Jewish storytelling, in Judaism, the Holy One, God, has attributes, divine attributes. And our job as humans is to learn about them and embody them. Mm-hmm. And so the purpose of the story must be, among its other levels, <coughs> to teach us about something. Mm-hmm. And so I know it's a stretch, right? Let us make that. And now it's up to teach us humility. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. because what can we learn from this story? And then you, you tell it, you you tell a story about the story. But now we have to worry about getting the angels uh, envious of us because... Right, right. In the, now in, it's not just... In the Jewish imagery, in the Jewish stories about the angels are a mixed bag. You know, they, they're, they're really resentful of the humans because God yeah. loves them so much. Very Greek. Um, and so it is very Greek, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. Very Greek. Let us make Adam. Here's what Rashi says next on the same verse. Even though the angels did not assist God in creation. And therefore, there is an opportunity for the heretics to rebel, to misconstrue the plural as a basis for their heresies. Scripture did not hesitate to teach proper conduct and the trait of humility that a great one should consult with and receive permission from a smaller one. Okay, what's going on here? What is going on with the heretics? Uh, Well, okay. In the Middle Ages, Rashi, 11th century, the big debate is if you believe in more than one God or if you deny the existence of God, you're a heretic. Mm -hmm. And so he has to, and he's living in a world, a Christian world. It's like, you in the Middle Ages, right up to the very present, in many cases, where the idea that there can be a plurality of opinions and cultures, and that we can all coexist, is, a, is, is basically only a modern idea. It's one of the things, good things that's happened in the last couple hundred years, right? That allows us not to kill each other over, uh, well, over this stuff if we can only do so, right? 
Huh? But still I know, but I'm saying the concept didn't even exist yeah. prior to modernity, that there could be multiple truths. So, the heretics are those who are looking in the Torah for, aha, let us. See, there's more than one God. And so this is a very live argument for Rashi. Mm-hmm. He says, nope, it, even though the Torah text says, let us, which gives an opening for heretics to say, hey, what about your Torah here? Mm-hmm. Says, like, still, that's how much it was important to teach this lesson of humility, uh, uh, which is that a great one should consult with and receive permission from a smaller one. Mm-hmm. So it's all a lesson. So Rashi's teaching about this, let us, is that it's about teaching humility, even God's humility, and how much the more so, therefore, if we want to, rec- if we want to manifest our divine image, must we behave in the same way. I'll keep reading, just one sec, and then we'll tell. Had it been written, let me make man, we would not have learned that God was speaking with God's angelic court, but merely with God's own self. And anyway, he goes, the refutation to the heretics is written alongside it in the following verse, when it says, and God created the human being. It doesn't say, and they created the human being. So Rashi's just covering all his bases. He says, <laughs> see, no, 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 it's clearly singular. So therefore, this plural, let us, must be here to teach us something. That gives you an idea of Rashi's approach, right? I wanted you to see that. What did you want to say, Esther? Consults with a team, one who consults with people who are lesser in stature and responsibility than he is, but who he seeks to get advice from. So it's, mm. so it's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So now let's read um, some more about this on the same question of let us. Before we read Perketa Rabbi Eliezer, um, <coughs> let's see. Sure, let's read this one, but I want to make sure we get to the next one because I really like it. I like this too. So Perketa Rabbi is a collection from like maybe the 8th century of older, older traditions. The Holy One, blessed be he, spoke to the Torah. Let us make Adam in our image after our likeness. So who's God talking to? The Torah. <laughs> what is that about? Any ideas? <laughs> It must be that the Torah is all that is already written without form that comes into form. The Torah exists in Jewish thought in supernal form. This written Torah is only our physical artifact. But the Torah is understood as the blueprint of creation. Right. But even more so, starting in the book of Proverbs, so going way back to like the 5th century BCE, the Torah is God's consort. Consort. How can there just be one God? I mean, doesn't God have a wife? You know, it's like, so it's like our imaginations can't handle this idea of, you know, that's what, of a single solitary God doesn't even try. So um, the Torah is feminine, exists prior to creation with God and is the blueprint, that is, the template 
shall we say, the matrix, mm-hmm. matrix meaning mother, out of which creation is constructed. Mm-hmm. It's the blueprint, but matrix is a better word given. And so, what does let us make man mean? Well, obviously, God's talking to Torah, God's beloved consort, and the, the, the female quality through which God is going to manifest the world. It's like it's another whole mythic world here. Uh, for those who think that Judaism isn't populated with mythic images, I, I'm happy to disabuse you today. Because um, you can't tell a story with just one person. So the Holy One replied, let us, who? The Torah. The Torah replied, sovereign of all the worlds. The human who you, the Torah takes issue with God. And this is where, again, I want you to see how we project, how the, how the composers of inter, the interpretation of the Torah and the ter, ter, Torah itself project our perception of the human conundrum onto a heavenly debate. The human whom you create has a brief life and is full of anger. The power of sin will overtake the human. Unless you will be long-suffering with the human, it would be well if the human were not created at all. (laughs) So it's kind of like the wife saying to the husband, you sure you want to do this? You know what you're getting yourself into? And God says, the Holy One responded, well, and is it for naught that I am called slow to anger and abounding in love? Mm. Like, I can handle it. Barely. Mm. Right? Because look what happens at the end of here. God said, I'm going to destroy everything. Oh, but no, I won't. I won't. I'll say, you know, it's like, so, but it's a beautiful story. And God began to collect the dust of the first human from the four corners of the world. Beautiful. Red, black, white, and green. And why green? I don't know. Who but that's green the green people? Yeah, I don't know. Is that yellow? It said yarok. It said green. Hmm. But again, remember, cool. they had, these were meaningful terms to them that I would have to study to find out what green meant mm. to them, right? They weren't, our interpretation is, humans are all color, red, black, brown, mm. but that may not be what they were thinking about, you know. But it's still, it's nice to translate it. Mm. The Holy One formed the lumps of dust of the first human in a pure place. It was the navel of the earth, Tabor Haaretz. Uh, that is a classic mythic um, motif. You know, where do we come from? Well, you know, our umbilical cord, the navel of the earth. Uh, God breathed with the breath of the soul into the human, as it is said, and God breathed into the being's nostrils the breath of life. Now, Adam stood and began to gaze upwards and downwards. And Adam's stature, his koma, because lakum means to stand up, extended from one end of the world to the other. Adam saw all the creatures that the Holy One, Blessed Be, had created, and Adam was astounded and began to praise and glorify the Creator, saying, How many are your works, O God? Quoting the Psalms. Adam then stood on his feet and was adorned with the divine image. Adam then stood on his feet and was adorned with the divine image. What did Adam do that allowed him to stand on his feet, and that then per- somehow permitted the divine image to adorn him. Gratitude, praise. Gratitude, praise, acknowledgement of the wondrousness of all. 
humility, ironically, and again, this is the paradox of being a human being, ironically, it takes humility in order to realize your divine nature. You have to recognize that you didn't make everything. And that, so that is the paradox of, one of the key paradoxes of our, uh, of this conundrum of, human, of being a human being, is that in order to recognize our great, in order to achieve our greatness, we have to recognize that we're creatures and be aware of that and wondrous and grateful and amazed. It's, I think that's so cool. The creatures saw Adam and were afraid, thinking that Adam had created them. So they all came to worship Adam, because he was standing upright, right? Adam said to them, you have come to worship me, but come, you and I, let us go and make God our sovereign, who created us all. Thus Adam was the first to declare God's sovereignty, and all the creatures followed while Adam proclaimed, God reigns, God is clothed in majesty. I love that story, that telling. So the us was God and Torah talking, and then the story goes on. Yes? I love, I don't know what it is in Hebrew, but I love the use of the word astounded. Uh huh. There's something about that that's um, like was in awe of, and there was this great mystery, and he couldn't figure it out. He didn't really know, but it was like. Heschel calls it radical amazement. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. it. And it's a wonderful word, astounded. It is. This is radical amazement. But I chose it. Oh, okay. I was looking at the Hebrew and I said, that looks, I think that's astounding. Well, I think you made a Thank you. Choice. <laughs> <laughs> I was adapting the translations I went along. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, like, it's a wonderful word. Miriam? Right. So it's not like feeling I am superior to the animals, we are one. Right, it's not, Adam does not, even though Adam is um, given, the, is instructed in, in the next verse to keep shu or do, to, to domesticate, dominate, control the animals, uh, again, it's a paradox. If you do that and think that you are therefore the big cheese, you do not, you've lost your awareness of your divine image. Uh, so beloved are human beings that they were made in the divine image, meaning, says Rabbi Kiva, meaning that we have these incredible capacities to create and to manifest and to, but more beloved, even more beloved are they that they were given the capacity to know, to be aware that they're made in the divine image. So uh, that's why I think that's such a piece of, of deep wisdom from Akiva is that if we only manifest our ability, uh, this great ability we have, since we're upright and we have hands and we can control and dominate and, uh, you know, keep shuat ha'aretz, essentially uh, conquer the land, um, and we don't uh, recognize what this Midrash says, that we're actually not the creators but we're creatures given this capacity. Again, it's the human, it's, it's, it's the human uh, conundrum. Uh, our, uh, so let's read the next one. In the Talmud, they ask the question, let us make man, so this is the same, this is another, 
I think one of the things I want you to get out of this is all of this comes from Jews asking the question, who's us? Right, from this verse. Yeah. But I think it's amazing that we have to forget about what we know is coming later, a whole different story, to try to concentrate on this, knowing the Garden of Eden story is somewhere down the road. Right, every verse we can, is like a rabbit hole. <laughs> right, that we can go down, and I wanted to go down this one today. Right? And then if we have, you know, what would it be like to devote ourselves to Torah study all the time? We'd, we'd be going down that one after we had got some lunch, you know, after this one. So, uh, but also making those connections is important, and you'll see that I make a connection later in this, uh, on the other page here. So, here's from, here's from the Talmud. <coughs> the angels said to God, oh, so in this one, God's talking to the ministering angels again and said, and one of, this is one of my all-time favorite stories, um, especially the, the final paragraph, which we'll get to. Um, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you think of him? From the Psalms. Okay, so these stories were woven by preachers, preachers, rabbis, who's, who would stand up in synagogue and give a sermon. And the, the, the Jewish art form of giving sermons is you find a verse from somewhere in the, to in the Bible that you like, and then you spin your tail from that verse. So why you see all these proof texts, like, which means uh, this line from Psalm, this, and this line from that, is because that's the art form. It's kind of like if you're a jazz musician, you know you're going to, have a, you have a key you're playing in, there's a theme, and then you're going to go off on the theme, and then you're going to come back to the theme. That's how, that, that's how you did these are, these These are riffs. These are stories. That is, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you think of him? The angels are not so keen on these humans. That is, a creature such as this is not worth creating. God outstretched God's little finger among them and incinerated them. <laughs> <laughs> right. So much for discourse. So much for discourse. Yeah. So this is another version. This is a whole other version. The same occurred with a second group of angels. The third group said before him, uh, Master of the Universe. <laughs> the first two groups who spoke their mind before you, what did they accomplish? Um, the entire world is yours. Whatever you wish to do in your world, do it. And then God created the first person. Okay. They learned. I love this. Because it means that our creation was a willful act of God. Because why? Because God wanted to. And it goes on. Despite being advised otherwise. Despite being advised otherwise. And that's the important part. When history, this is the rabbis looking at the human situation. It's like, what? You know, look at us. It's 2018. Look at us, yeah, right? Yeah, really. When history progressed to the time, the people of the generation of the flood and the people of the generation of the dispersion, that is the Tower of Babel, whose actions were ruinous, they said, sorry, before God, the angels, Master of the universe, didn't the first set of angels speak appropriately before you? 
that human beings are not worthy of having been created? And what does God do? God says to them concerning humanity, he quotes Isaiah, saying about people, even to your old age I will be constant, and even when you turn gray will I suffer you. I have made and I will bear and I will carry and I will deliver you. Mm, That is, having created people, I will even suffer their flaws. So what's the bottom line here? Wow, Wow. total compassion. God loves God's creation. And love is not a rational decision, right? Love is what motivates us. So this is the rab- this is all the rabbis can figure out. God must have done this because God loves us, because we certainly don't merit it. Do you follow what I mean? Totally. Now, here we go. This is the most famous one that some of you may have heard before. Rabbi Shimon said, and he tells a variant, when the Holy One, Blessed Be, came to create Adam and said, let us, and consulted with the heavenly court, the ministering angels formed themselves into groups and parties. Some of them said, don't create the human being. While others urged, create the human being. As it is written, loving kindness and truth met, justice and peace kissed. Okay, that's how so. Loving kindness said, create the human beings, for they will do acts of loving kindness. Truth said, do not create the human beings, because they are full of lies. Justice said, create the human beings, because they will perform acts of justice. Peace, and each of these is a each of these qualities is a ministering angel. Peace said, do not create the human beings because they are full of conflict. So what did God do? This one really goes for it. God took truth and cast it to the ground, as it is written, and truth shall be hurled to the ground. The ministering angel said to the Holy One, Sovereign of the universe, why do you despise your seal of truth? Let truth arise from the earth, as it is written, let truth spring up from the earth. While the ministering angels were arguing and disputing with each other, God created the first human. God then said to the ministering angels, what are you arguing about? Adam has already been made. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All of this... Debating whether or not to have a baby and then, oops... (laughs) <laughs> right, right. They're unconscious, dry. Yeah. But all of this is to say that the rabbis look at the human situation. This is 2,000 years ago. They look at the human situation and they say, what merit do we human beings have to be here? Well, at best, we're a mixed bag, right? In other words, uh, loving kindness and uh, 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 justice vote for us. Right? But peace and truth say, no way. In other words, it, we're a mixed bag at best. Um, and yet here we are. Uh, willy-nilly, here we are. And we sense that there is an uprightness, a standing up that is called of us if we're going to fulfill this intimation we have of what we can be. And how are we going to do that? How do we do that? Judaism, not exclusive of other traditions, Judaism is our answer to that question. 
if we practice. And practice is the key word. You know, do your Pilates so you can stand up straight. You know, if we practice. And how do we practice? God's giving us mitzvot to fulfill. How do we live an upright life? Yashar be'enav. That's upright in God's eyes. Um, yeah. I always think of Judaism as an extremely adult religion because this is a very grown-up view, it seems to me. <laughs> you know, and like, un- unflinching. Unflinching. That's what I wanted to share with you. This is unflinching. This is not Pollyannish. And, and, and the way this is done, both the way the rabbis approach it, and maybe even in why it's placed as let us in the Torah, that this is, it's inevitable. This is in the nature of how we are created. And it's not just that we turned out badly. This is inevitable. That's what all That's right. This is, is the it's moment of our creation. Like this is what, this is what happens at the moment of our creation, this inevitable... Because of how we're made. Of how we're made. So, so there's something about it that was very important, very powerful. In, in a lot of arguments that go on currently even, oh, we're born good. Oh, we're not born. You know, it's not. We're born mixed. Whatever it is, it's going to be mixed forever. That's you know? right. And then it's up to us to use whatever we mean by free will. All right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Please. The whole idea of that we were created undeserving of anything speaks to me of one, it's a gift. It speaks to me of great gratitude. It speaks to me of deserving and undeserving art. There's no difference between it. The humility is that we know we don't deserve it no matter what. Um, And we all get things that we don't deserve and we also get things that we think we do deserve. So it's, it's just kind of part of that whole mystery of um, the gift of life that we have, and I've been thinking of it lately as a loan. As a loan? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if I'm, you know, very observant and I do all the right things and I do the mitzvot, I still don't deserve this gift. And even if I don't do anything, I still deserve the gift. So it's all sort of mixed up. And yeah, we are a mixed bag, and yet God, God cares, but God doesn't really care. God cares about us, if you want to look at it that way. Life cares about us. The universe cares about us because we're cared for. If we weren't cared for, we wouldn't be here. So in some way or other, no matter what we've born in our life, we've been in some way cared for enough to get us right here, right now. And think about whether we deserve it or we don't deserve it, it almost doesn't matter, except for me, I know I don't. (laughs) I understand. I understand. Thank you. Thank you. I wanted to point out that the way that Judaism sees the purpose of creation, traditionally, 
is in order that we human beings might recognize our divine nature and manifest it in a world of justice and loving kindness. Right? There's a purpose. Um, and the purpose is that each of us and us collectively um, have a task, which is how do we learn how to stand upright, right? as opposed to be part of the swarming mass of life. Confusion. Well, and I don't, confusion, no, but I, I, I wasn't thinking of that as confusion. I was thinking of that as life. Mm -hmm. right? Life is a swarming, fecund, mm -hmm. constantly proliferating. It's like we're part of that. And yet, we also are breathed this, are created in the image of the divine. We sense that about ourselves. And how do we then manifest it? And that is the eternal question that, of, that any human being of conscience grapples with. Miriam? Well, I get the swarming. Um, Pharaoh said the swarming Jews. Right. And then when the spies went up to Israel, the swarming, it's like God realized they're not ready. They're not ready. They can't enter the promised land. I got land. it. Well, I never understood quite, but when you said when they, not just that they just don't see themselves enough different than being slaves. So they're not ready to take over the land. Mm-hmm. 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 So in the Haftorah, the prophetic passage that the rabbi selected long ago for Genesis, take, just take a look for a minute. At page 51, the Haftorah for Breshit. <coughs> they chose a passage from Isaiah to amplify and comment on this passage 51. Thus says the eternal God, the one who created the heavens and stretched them out and who made the earth and all that grows in it, who gives breath to its people, ruach, neshama, soul and spirit to all who walk on it. Okay, so that one verse summarizes the whole portion that we were just looking at. You follow what I'm saying? So that's why they chose it. Thus says the eternal God, I, the eternal, have called you in righteousness and taken you by the hand. I am the one who created you and made you a covenant people, a light to the nations. That is the ancient Jewish sense of mission. That by manifesting this awareness that we're called in righteousness, uprightness, that there is a just, we can manifest justice and loving kindness in the world. That makes us a light to the nations. We've been given this instruction, this Torah, to open eyes that are blind, to bring the captive out of confinement, and those who sit in darkness out of the dungeon. That's where that line comes from, light to the nations. It comes from Isaiah. So again, in modern terms, we might, we, we we generally might not likely might, might not um, might not be entirely comfortable with that exclusive claim to you know mission that we have a, but 
Um, it doesn't have to be exclusive. Everyone else can have their mission too. Um, and, but if we understand our purpose as to be called in righteousness, to bring a, be a light to the nations, and to bring the captive out of confinement uh, and out of the dungeon, that's the, that's the Haftorah's commentary on what it means to be made in the divine image. Um, now, I want to share with you two more things before we run out of time. Uh, go back to page, uh, to chapter 2, verse 7. That's page 22. Verse 7. It says, Then God Eternal fashioned the man dust from the soil and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life so that the man became a living being. Now we're in the other creation story. But it's the first word of verse 7 in Hebrew. Vayitzer. Uh, if you read Hebrew, you'll find it. It has two yuds. This becomes a very important believe it or not, um, part of the teaching that we've been ex you know, expanding on today. And now look at what Rashi says about the two Yuds on the page that I gave you. Formed, Vayitzer, has two Yuds. And that hints at two creations. A creation for this world and a creation for the time of the resurrection of the dead. Meaning, in his terminology, when the final judgment happens. But in connection with the animals, which do not stand in judgment, and the word stand is there, two yuds are not written in the word vayitzer, describing their creation, which happens in... Um, uh, verse 18, verse 19 on page 23. It says, if you look at the first word, Vayitzer with one yud, and in verse 7, Vayitzer has two yuds. The point here is that we have Shte Yitzirot, Yitzer Hatov, and Yitzer Hara. We are the combination that we've been describing all along. Yes? And also you can use, uh, read it as Vayyatzer. So Reburia has a new teaching. How would you translate that? Yatsar Vayyatzer. He created and he will recreate. And will recreate. Oh, beautiful. And he breathed into his nostrils, he made him of earthly matter and of heavenly matter. The body of earthly matter, the soul of heavenly matter. Again, I'm sharing this with you to show that consistently being made in the image of God, but being made of the dust of the earth, is the initial description of human beings that will be sort of the fundamental 
understanding of who we are throughout Jewish literature. Yeah? Is there significance to the double yud that's used when, when the prayers are written? You know, Baruch Atah Oh, that double yud is different. And I will tell you about that another time because we're going to run out of time. However, what I thought you were going to say is that it also says in V'ahavta, V'ahavta et Adonai Elohecha, you shall love Yod Hevavhe, your God, v'chol levavcha, v'chol nafshecha, v'chol modecha. And why does it say levavcha, which means with all your heart, when it could say v'chol libcha? It has two vav, two vets. And again, the teaching, when you get to that in Deuteronomy, is with both of your natures. Um, uh, that somehow we have to be able to manifest this love through, through both our physical and our, our body and our neshama. So now I want to show you one more thing, which is that, as you can tell, and you have to love this stuff in order to want to do it, um, Judaism is completely, overwhelmingly involved in letters and words. Like, we're taking two yuds, we're taking a plural instead of a singular, and we're telling the story of the universe through it. Do you follow what I'm saying? That's the Jewish way. You know, when I was in uh, Nepal, in Lomantang, they do it through these, un- through these unbelievably elaborate paintings. That I went into an artist's studio that paints the traditional tankas there, the Tibetan Buddhist, uh, and he, he walked me through. He was used to tourists, and he... Uh, he was a lovely man, and I, so I just, I bought a piece of art, it worked. So, um, uh, and he showed me, I said, tell me about this painting. Every single thing he painted was symbolic of something about the human condition and the journey from, to spiritual enlightenment. And it was all in a painting. It was fun. It was really fun. How do we do it? We do it this way. Through letters and then taking them apart and then telling stories about them. That's how we do it. And it's all about the spiritual journey. That's what Judaism is about, just like every other tradition. How do we get from being coarse matter to manifesting the sublime essence that we intuit and understand as a part of everything? How do we walk that journey? And the Jewish way is with letters and words. And, um, of course... The more years I do it, the more illuminating it is. Just like the more time you spend contemplating a Tibetan tanka, the more illuminating it will be as you understand the, the deeper and deeper symbolisms of everything. So, there is a tradition, and that's all as a preface to say, there's a tradition that there is a middle letter in the Torah. Right? There's a middle word in the Torah, there's a middle verse. So you take the five books of Moses... And wouldn't be significant, given our, our obsession with letters and words, that someone would figure out what the middle letter of the Torah is. Now, I don't know if it's exactly the middle letter, because that's not the point. It's not a mathematical problem, because it's a moral question. So let me show you what the tradition is of the middle letter of the Torah, which just blew me away. So if you look at page 716, that's Leviticus chapter 11, verse um, uh, 42. So page 716. Uh, 
42? Yes, chapter 11, verse 42, but we'll start with verse 41. 716. Swarm. Swarm. Yes, here we're back to swarming. This is the chapter on all the animals that you can and cannot eat, but that's not important, as important as this teaching. All the things that swarm upon the earth are an abomination. They shall not be eaten. Well, that is significant. All, you know, in the laws of, this is the chapter that says what animals can be eaten and what can't be. And so things that crawl on all fours, that uh, snakes, that, you know, all, all those things. Oh, I see. Lizards, they're not considered kosher. Unless you're dying and then you can eat it. Yes, you're permitted if you're dying. Uh, you shall not eat among all the things that swarm upon the earth, anything that crawls on its belly or walks on fours or has many legs. Okay, now, look at the Hebrew in verse 42. Kol halech al gachon. Do you see that, there's, uh, the, that it's the second to last line, word on that line. And do you notice that there's an enlarged letter? Yeah. yeah. Where are we? Uh, okay. Oh, right there. Uh-huh. Gachon. If anyone wants to... What is that letter? Is that a vav? That's a vav. There's a tradition in the scribal tradition which is intimately tied to the interpretive tradition. Some letters are written large in Torah and some are written small. Um, and those letters are not accidentally written so. They are there as part of this obsession that we have. Um, it's a scribal tradition. And so, if you look at gachon, gachon means belly. But the vav, the middle letter of the Torah, is enlarged and extending upright. Oh, for heaven's sake. <laughs> I'm not kidding. If you look at the note uh, down in um, uh, below, verse 42, Belly, gachon. Do you see it? Yeah. In Torah manuscripts, the letter vav in this word is written extra large because, so it is said, this is the middle letter of the entire Torah. Now, our commentator here does not ascribe it the significance I'm ascribing it. This detail symbolizes the meticulous care that the scribes gave to the text. I should say even more so. They could have chosen any word here to be the middle letter of the Torah. Nobody was actually counting. Um, they chose the word belly and the vav extending up out of the, the swarming. Do you follow what I'm saying, everybody? Mm, yeah. Vav literally means a hook, a connector. That's why v in Hebrew, when you put it before a word, means and. Because a vav and uh, vav is, means is to connect. But it's also this upright letter extending extra large out of a word about swarming, a whole sentence about swarming. Interesting. And about being on, on your belly. And I look at that and I cannot think it's accidental. I have to think it comes out of the concept universe that we've been exploring this whole class. Do you follow what I'm, I mean? Um, because we're, we're selling the Torah short, and I've learned this by studying it for so long, by assuming these things are some kind of scribal error. Wow. Um, they, were, they were, if you're obsessed with something, 
if, and, and I mean that in a, not in an unhealthy way. It could be. But if you're obsessed with it, you are combing it all the time to elucidate and to illuminate and to... And this they decided in the scribal tradition, the vav extending up out of the creatures that crawl on their bellies. Now you can also tell a story that this, this could be about the snake mm. in the Garden of Eden too, as opposed to, you know... The, the vav, the human impulse to extend ourselves and arch ourselves and be upright and true and straight. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, in the scroll, that's also... Um, yes, mm-hmm. yes. That's, this replicates what's in the scroll. Mm-hmm. Gail? Um, Mary Douglas, in her book on Leviticus, which we all studied, says the centerpiece of the Torah is Leviticus because biblical writing went from the cent- to the center and then back down. And it's one way to read the books. And so the center of the center... Pointing to heaven. Yes. Right? So crawling and upright. Well, yes. Why does it say anything that walks on fours? I just uh, think it would be significant. I mean... Mar- uh, I know, we do eat... And we're permitted early in the chapter to eat all kinds of animals that walk on fours. So, they, so we have to assume they're referring to uh, creepy crawlies. Yeah. Um, lizards. Lizards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the swarming so belly creep, the ones that are right. all, from our perspective, are all just sort of all over the ground. Okay. Yeah. So, you so, you mean, so chocolate grasshoppers are not kosher now? I don't know why, but grasshoppers of some sorts are considered kosher. And the reason I, I actually, the reason they're considered kosher is because they were um, of, uh, an important food protein source. In for for the uh, that region, and when they would come, the locusts would swarm. They were eaten. So, you know, John the Baptist. Or... I like that about rules. Do <laughs> <laughs> not start to pay attention to it. <laughs> <laughs> Gail, and we're almost done, everybody. Ah, uh, yes. That one of the names of God, Elohim, is plural. That would be, we have to, I would want to look at, again, at all my sources and see what the tradition has to say about that. My thought is, my thought is, and I don't, I don't and this is, I'm not trying to be definitive here, is that all the names of God, including yod heh you recall, which we translate as Lord, is not even a, um, is not even a, a word, you know, that we can pronounce. Uh, so Elohim being plural, to me, just sort of says, messing, you know, concepts of God intentionally are mixing plural and singular. And so in that story, let us make man in our image, would be also, because what is God? Singular? Plural? Uh, maybe. 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 Well, I hope you enjoyed my Woo! journey today. Learned a lot. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll meet again next week. Thank you. Yes. Yashikoa.